Good morning. This morning we're going to begin a new chapter in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Luke with a message that I've entitled, A Marvelous Military Man. Okay? A Marvelous Military Man. Maybe some of you guys can relate. Okay? Um, everyone there in Luke chapter 7? Yeah? All right. Well, then, if so, I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read our text this morning from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, If you're reading from a different translation, I would encourage you, do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke, he continues his orderly narrative of the life of Christ with the following in chapter 7, verse 1. Now when he, uh, referring to Jesus, concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Verse 6, Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to open up your word and to allow your spirit to lead us and guide us. Lord, we know that your spirit is with us because your spirit inhabits us, Lord. And Lord, we want to ask for your Holy Spirit's help in leading us through this truth. As we read through this portion of scripture, Lord, as we look to make just observations, Lord, hopefully it would lead to application into our own hearts, into our own lives. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would have his way in us, Lord, that we would have ears to hear all that your spirit desires to say through your word. And Lord, I look forward to our time of just communion or our time of of being with you. Lord, for the next, you know, 40 or so minutes, we pray that you would be at the forefront of all that we do. Lord, I pray that if there's anything from this week past or even the week ahead that it's just on our minds, Lord, that we be able to just lay those things before your feet and really surrender ourselves afresh to you in this moment. Bless this service. Bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. What makes a military man great? 
Uh, what sort of things make certain military men or women, I know we, we have some uh, uh, active duty women, okay? What, what makes certain military personnel stand out amongst their peers? What are the kinds of attributes, the characteristics that are most important in determining whether or not someone will be a successful military leader? You know, believe it or not, uh, these types of questions have been asked over and over and over again. Research has been done to try and identify the most important things that make a military leader a successful one. As I was uh, considering this topic, I did a little research of my own with the help of Google. Um, I typed in, what makes a good military leader? Question mark. Enter. You know, <laughs> um, and I was not disappointed, okay? There was all sorts of information, all sorts of articles, all sorts of research. I come to find out that many of you are sent to schools to learn this very thing, and you're sent to training to become good leaders. And as you advance in your military career, you're sent to even more and more and more classes on leadership and how to lead properly. You know, an article... Uh, posted on army.mil, and I, I know we don't have many army, if any, but um, don't, don't hold that against the article, okay? Um, it, it spoke of the need for leaders that, uh, one, can provide clear intent, uh, two, create shared understanding, uh, three, build cohesive teams, exercise discipline initiative, encourage soldiers to take prudent risks, trust subordinates to make sound decisions, and use mission orders that focus on what to do and why rather than how the order is to be carried out. And, and I read that and I kind of thought, that's kind of really wordy and it really wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking more for like a list of just character traits or attributes that really make people stand out within the military. On the website military.com, I, I found an article entitled Six Personality Traits of a Leader. And thought, well, this is what I was looking for, okay? And it's interesting because there was actually eight. And I thought, wow, okay, well, um, they said six, but um, because they actually listed off two absolutes that are required to start off with before even getting to the six. The most important personal traits listed, uh, and they were non-negotiables, were integrity and character. So you got to have those before you can look at any other six uh, personality traits. Uh, the article said that these were absolutes and they must be included in identifying good leaders. But the article went on to include ambition, uh, drive, and tenacity, self-confidence, uh, psychological openness, realism, which they described as the midpoint between optimism and pessimism, and lastly, an appetite for learning. One video that I particularly enjoyed watching uh, highlighted eight traits of what makes a great military leader. They listed out character, confidence with humility, okay, discipline, physical fitness, lifelong learning, professionalism, leading by example, and commitment. Okay. I even found an article put forth by the Norwegian Military Academy. It was a, uh, some research that they had done, a study that they had done, and they had put together... Uh, 
this topic, and they came up with 12 of the most important character strengths for military officers as selected by multiple panels of military officers. And here's their list of the 12 top character strengths from top to bottom. Number one was leadership. Okay? Number two was teamwork. Number three was open-mindedness. Okay? Number four was integrity. Number five was persistence. Six was bravery. Seven was curiosity. Eight was love of learning. Nine was social intelligence. Ten was fairness. Eleven was perspective. And rounding out the top 12 was creativity. You know, it was interesting to me. I I found myself, I'm like, man, I can read all these things kind of for a long time. And so I had to kind of stop after a while. But I found it interesting to see how many different lists that were out there. And how some people valued certain things over others in regards to leadership qualities within the military. And I don't know if there is an exact list of character traits out there that we can all agree upon as to what makes a military member great. But I do hope that we can agree upon the character of the man in our text this morning and learn from his example of what made him stand out as great, as marvelous, The definition of the word marvelous is causing great wonder, okay, to be extraordinary. And I would say that this military man in our account this morning fits the bill. Because if God himself marvels over you, I'd say that's pretty extraordinary, okay? Uh, I'd say that you've got something going for you that ought to be recognized, that ought to be celebrated, and probably ought to be followed. And so that's what we're going to try and do here in our text this morning. We're going to go through this text. We're going to pull out some observations that tell us a little bit more about this military man. What made him stand out? Okay. What made him great? What made him extraordinary and different? And my hope is that these character traits that we pull out would be things that we can all look to emulate in our own lives. Okay, these observations that we make, they are not limited to just military personnel. Okay? They are suitable for each and every one of us. It just so happens that a lot of you are military personnel, so this should be very applicable to most of you. Okay? So let's dive back into our text. We're going to see what made this military man so marvelous. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. We'll get us started again. Luke writes, now when he concluded all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. We'll stop right there. Our text, it begins with a few details to help set the scene and to transition from what we were covering in chapter 6. Okay, when it speaks about Jesus concluding all his sayings, it is referring to his teaching that he just gave in the previous ch- chapter, a teaching that we referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus spoke about the kingdom life and some priorities and principles and parables that are associated with it. And after he finished speaking all these things out in the countryside, we're told that he made his way back into the city of Capernaum. Now, the city of Capernaum was the most important city on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee within New Testament times. Far more than just a fishing village, okay, it was the economic center of the entire region of Galilee. It sat near a major trade route and then thus was a very wealthy city, a very popular destination, well-traveled. And after leaving his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus would choose Capernaum as his place to set up shop 
as his sort of headquarters, okay? It became uh, a place for his ministry uh, that he performed in and around the region of Galilee, often coming back and forth to the city of Capernaum. A number of the disciples lived in Capernaum. And so they'd go back to their homes. They would then go out to the surrounding areas, preaching the gospel of King, the kingdom, coming back and forth to Capernaum. Now, in verse 2, there is mention of a certain centurion. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, what a centurion is, I'll give you a brief explanation. Centurion was a Roman officer that was the backbone of the Roman army. A centurion was an officer in charge of about a hundred Roman soldiers. They would be some like, somewhat like our own NCOs in the U.S. military. Okay? I've been told, and part of the research I was doing, it said, no offense to throw anybody under the bus here, but that the NCOs were the backbone of the U.S. military. And so um, whether that's true or not, I can't say. But uh, maybe you can agree. I had one in first service that grunted, and so I think that they agreed. Um, and so that's the idea behind these guys, these, these centurions. Okay? Typically, these types of military leaders were actually looked down upon. They were disliked by the general Jewish population because they represented the Roman occupational force. Okay? They were leaders of the group of people that were ruling over them. They were an unwanted authority figure within the Jewish population. But interestingly enough, most all of the mentions of a Roman centurion found within the scriptures are ones that are shared with mainly positive reviews. Uh, there's the centurion in our text this morning that Jesus commends for his marvelous faith. Then there was the centurion that was there on the hill of Calvary when Jesus was crucified. It was he that proclaimed of Jesus, truly, this was the Son of God. The very first Gentile to be converted and to be baptized in the Holy Spirit was a centurion named Cornelius. And we can read about him in Acts chapter 10. And then in Acts chapter 27, there's a centurion by the name of Julius that took care of Paul and, and watched over him while Paul was being transported to Rome in, in his own custody. Julius um, gave special favor to Paul, uh, was very kind to him, took care of him, uh, and was seen in a very positive light. And so though traditionally these officers were not liked by the Jews, we do see from the scriptures that there were some God-fearing, godly men who served as centurions and were well-received by members of the Jewish community. Now, not only are we introduced to a certain centurion, we're also told about his servant in verse 2. We're told that his servant was sick and ready to die. The word sick in the Greek is the word kakos. And it comes from the root word meaning bad or evil. Okay, this, the word simply is used to speak not of a specific sickness. Okay, we're not told what kind of sickness uh, when it says he's sick. Okay, but really the degree to which they are feeling the effects of the sickness. Literally, okay, what the Greek says is that this servant had it badly. Okay, that's what it says. Um, things were not looking too good for him. In Matthew's parallel account, we're told that he was lying at home paralyzed and uh, dreadfully tormented. 
Uh, that word paralyzed in this context, it speaks of a condition where they can't even move their body. They're in such pain and anguish that they are incapacitated. The pain he's experiencing is excruciating and it prevents him from even being able to move a single muscle. This servant was on his deathbed, reeling in pain and really unable to do anything at all about it. And we're told that this servant was dear to the centurion. Now the word dear, it speaks of something that is very precious, something that is of great value, something that's greatly honored. And and really, this is the first indication that we have that lets us know that this particular centurion was different. Okay, for you see, back in those days and ages, a servant was seen as nothing more than a thing, okay, to possess, a piece of property. They were treated like properly. Usually one would not show great concern or place such high value upon a possession of theirs, upon a slave, a servant. The fact that this centurion felt this way about his sick slave was odd. Why was he so concerned? Because the mentality of that day was, well, you could just get another servant if this one dies. In fact, under Roman law, a master had the right to even kill his slave. And it was actually expected that he would do so if the slave became ill or injured to the point where he could not work. Almost as if, you know, maybe you have uh, an ox or a horse or something that breaks a leg and you're just, you know, you're just going to put it down. You'll you'll get another one type of a thing. That is how people looked at and uh, treated slaves during that day. And so the typical response in this case Uh, that which was permissible under law, Roman law, and expected by most was that the centurion would just go ahead, put his servant out of his misery, and just get another one. But But the fact that this slave was dear to the centurion lets us know that he is a little bit different than the rest of the people that treated slaves as simple pieces of property that can easily be replaced. He valued the life of his servant. He cared about him. He was hurting. He was weak. He was helpless and hopeless. And he had a heart for him. And this is the first thing I want to note about this centurion. This centurion greatly valued the life of his servant. And he teaches us to place great value upon all life. You know, it can be tempting to only care about those who are powerful those who have influence, those that can help you. But this centurion cared about a slave that really had no power, who had little to offer him, whose life had little to no value amongst the rest of society. And this centurion is an example for us to follow because we are called not to show favoritism. We're called not to show partiality in our faith. James writes, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And he then goes on to describe a situation where two different people enter into an assembly. One comes into the assembly wearing gold and fine apparel. The other is a a, a poor man. If we show partiality to the man in fine apparel and gold and shun the poor man, we're guilty of showing partiality. James continued stating, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so we are not to show partiality. We are to place value upon all life. We're to care for those above us, below us, all around us. Well, let's continue on in our account by taking a look at our next verse to see what other sort of observations we can make about this centurion. Verse 3 says, So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. This centurion, he had heard about Jesus. What exactly he heard, we can't say with certainty, but it would seem based upon the context and what we've studied already through the Gospel of Luke, that it's very likely that the centurion heard the accounts about Jesus speaking and teaching with great authority, as well as his authority over sickness and his ability to heal people. Remember, right now, Jesus's popularity is still at a high. He's still well-respected. Flocks of people, multitudes are still coming out to him, and people are talking. There's a buzz going about. Oh man, did you hear about what Jesus did? He did this and he did that. And so it's very likely that those are the types of things that this centurion heard about Jesus. We know that this man will be commended by Jesus for his great faith. And it reminded me of Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that teaches us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This Roman centurion had heard about Jesus and he was willing to listen. He was open-minded. He was submissive towards Jesus. And I think this is important and worth noting. The fact that this centurion was willing to be open-minded, he was willing to listen to the words being told to him about Jesus, it speaks volumes about the kind of person that he was. I did find it interesting to consider that on all those lists that I was able to look up in uh, what made a military uh, leader uh, successful, what made them great, that the character trait of being open-minded popped up on multiple lists, okay, more than more, more and more, I, I think three different times I found it on, you know, at least six different articles that I read, this idea of being open-minded. The idea was, hey, if you, you know, you have to be open-minded. If someone comes to you with an, an, an idea that's better than yours, you need to be willing to take it, be willing to receive it and, and implement it and not be closed-minded and be like, nope, my way or the highway, that is not going to lead to being a successful military leader. And so, um, you know, the idea is we want to be open-minded. The opposite of that is to be closed-minded, to be set in our ways, to be unwilling to change, unwilling to consider other possibilities. We need to have an open mind in order to respond to the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to be willing to yield ourselves and submit to God's Spirit and God's Word as they lead and guide us. You know, as you gather in this place for for worship, are you open to what the Spirit of God desires to do? Are you open to receiving from the Lord and allowing Him to make changes in your life that will be for His glory and ultimately for your own good? Or are we closed-minded, unwilling to yield, unwilling to consider any other possibilities that you've already come to a decision upon? I hope the example of this centurion being open to listening to the words that he heard about Jesus will be an example that we follow in our own lives. That we wouldn't be so set in our ways, okay? 
that we wouldn't be yielded to, and open to change. Because let me tell you something here, okay? Family, friends, none of us have arrived yet. None of us are finished products. God's still molding and shaping us. So if he wants to do in a work, if he wants to do a work in us, are we open to that? Are we yielded to what God would desire for us? I do hope that we would be. Well, as the centurion heard word about Jesus, and he heard that he was in Capernaum, he sent Jewish elders to Jesus that they may plead with him to come and heal his servant. This too is a bit odd that Jewish elders would be willing to go and plead before Jesus on behalf of a Roman centurion and his servant was well outside the normal type of behavior. And as I already noted, the Jews, they didn't always like the Roman authorities. Oftentimes they despised them, but something was different about this particular Roman centurion that allowed him to have special favor with the Jewish elders, something that set him apart. So let's read verses 4 and 5 to see what it was that set him apart. It says, And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. The Jewish elders, they came to Jesus. They earnestly begged Jesus to come with them back to the centurion's house that he may heal his servant. The Jews begged Jesus, stating that the one whom he should do this for was deserving. The word deserving uh, in the Greek, it speaks of the idea of being worthy of such special treatment. The Greek word is the word axios. Uh, in the Greek, it literally means to be of weight. Okay? It's believed that it actually refers to a set of scales where the weights bring or draw down the beam to a horizontal level when the weights are equal on each side. Okay? Thus, the idea here is that when you weigh out all that the centurion has done, you put it on a scale that it would be equal to the task of Jesus coming and healing his servant. And while I can imagine and I understand the mental picture here, I am so glad to know that this is not the way that God works. (laughs) We don't have to earn God's favor. We don't have to do a bunch of good deeds that we can then put on a scale in order to get God to come and do something for us. The Jewish elders, they believed this was how to approach God, but they were wrong. And we'll note the better and more proper way to approach the Lord later on in our study. But for now, the thing I want to point out here about the centurion was that he was a man of good character. He had a good reputation. He was spoken of favorably by the leaders within the community. You know, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1 tells us something about having a good name and how valuable it is. It says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. And in Paul's description of qualifications for overseers, leaders within the church, he states, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You see, having a good reputation really gets to the idea of living a life of integrity. When our private lives match up with our public personas, You see, living in integrity means that we don't have hidden agendas. It means that we don't have dishonest practices. It means that we don't live double lives. But we live authentically before the Lord and before others. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 18 exhorts us, If it is possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. This is something the centurion made sure to do. He is a great example for us to follow after. Now, in our text, the Jewish elders, they give two reasons why they felt this centurion was deserving of Jesus coming and healing his servant. We'll take a look at each reason and note something special about the centurion in each example. The first thing they brought up was that this centurion loved their nation. Now, I want to make sure you understand what is being said here. This isn't a patriotic love for country that's being spoken of here. Okay, the word translated as nation in English is the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnic from. And so what it speaks of is more along the lines of a particular people group, okay? an ethnic group. Okay? When it says that he loves our nation, what they are saying is that he loves the Jewish people. Okay? The centurion loved the Jewish people, and the kind of love that he had for them was the kind of love that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when covering chapter 6 and talking about our need to love like God loves us. It's that agape love, that selfless, sacrificial, unconditional kind of love that God demonstrated to us when he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to take our place upon the cross and take the penalty for our sins. This centurion loved the Jewish people, and that word love is the agape love. That's the kind of love that he had. He had a selfless, sacrificial love for God's people. And I believe the same should be true of us. We are to love others, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to love our neighbors, and even to love our enemies, as we talked about in chapter 6. We are to love all people with the love of Christ. Now, the second thing that they brought up that they felt demonstrated the centurion's worth was the fact that he built the Jews a synagogue. A synagogue was the place that the people met together at to read God's word, to pray together, and to fellowship. It's much like our modern-day church. Okay? Evidently, this man helped build, uh, probably meaning that he helped pay for and support a building project for a local synagogue. He used his resources to help establish and build up the local place of worship. And again, I believe we note how important it is that we do the same that we would be involved in building up and edifying the body of Christ, that we would serve one another, and that we would use our own gifts and our own resources to help establish the local church. Not that it earns us favor, as we will soon see and note, but it is something that we are called to do. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 reads, And he, referring to God, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, or your translation can read, building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the body, 
from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You see, each and every one of us has a part to play in building up, in edifying the body of Christ, okay? The local church body, okay? Our brothers and sisters in the Lord. God wants us to play an important part in helping build up the local congregation. And so my encouragement to you, my exhortation to you is, is get plugged in, okay? Get plugged in and get involved, okay? Help to build this local congregation, this church family, okay? Be an active part. Well, let's continue in our text. We'll take a look at verses 6 and 7 and see what else stands out about this Roman centurion military man. Verse 6 says, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. We'll pause right there. Okay? The Jewish elders, they went to Jesus. They pleaded with him, saying how deserving, how worthy this man was of Jesus coming to his home, and bringing healing and deliverance to his servant. Well, Jesus agreed to go with them. And they went on their way back to the centurion's house. But before they arrived at their final destination, the centurion sent out another group of friends to tell Jesus not to be bothered or worried about coming to his house. You see, the centurion was probably well aware of the cultural no-no that it would be for a prominent Jewish rabbi to enter into the house of a Gentile. Though it was not against the law, it was a culturally taboo thing to do. Rabbis instructed their people to stay completely away from the Gentiles because they're unclean. And uh, it, that would include entering into their homes. Uh, to do so would make you ceremonially unclean, unable to participate in the local worship service. Whether or not that played into this thinking, we can't say with any sort of certainty, but I think it's interesting to consider. However, we can say that it wasn't the only reason, okay? For we are told one of the reasons the centurion called off Jesus, told him that he didn't have to come to his house, uh, and it had to do with the exact opposite of what the Jewish elders tried to say. You see, the Jewish elders said, Oh, man, this man, he is deserving. He's such a good guy, Jesus. He loves the Jews. He's even helped, you know, build up, establish our local synagogue. You should do this for him because, you know, he's earned it. It's well-deserved. That wasn't the approach of the centurion. Instead of trying to claim that he was deserving and worthy, he said the exact opposite. He said that he was not worthy to have Jesus come to him and to enter into his house. This centurion, he had a proper and accurate view of himself in light of the Lord. He was not worthy, okay? And he understood that nothing he did could ever merit the favor of God. Not only did he realize that there was nothing he could do to merit God coming to him, he also knew there was nothing good inside himself that would allow him to come to God. He wasn't worthy of God coming into his house And he also understood that he wasn't worthy to go to God on his own merits. You see, this centurion had a great deal of humility. Okay, and he understood the basic principle behind needing the grace of God. Listen, 
Without the grace of God, we could never have our relationship restored with the Lord. We cannot do anything to make God come to us and enter into our presence. We can't do anything that would make us worthy to enter into His presence on our own. Okay? There is no amount of good deeds. There is no amount of works that we can do that we could pile up on a scale that would even begin to tilt the scale towards our favor. It is all based upon the grace of God. We are not worthy, okay? And nothing we do will make us worthy of God because it is all about God's grace upon us. It's not about our worth, okay? Because we will never measure up. We will never be good enough. There are no amount of works that can get us to earn God's favor. It is a work of God's grace. We need the grace of God to take over. We need to remain humble before the Lord at all times, okay? Well, let's read the rest of verse 7 along with verse 8 as we continue on our study. In the end of verse 7, it says, But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes. And to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. At the end of verse 7, the centurion declares, but say the word and my servant will be healed. He then goes on in verse 8 describing how he too is a man under authority and he understands how authority works. This highlights yet another character trait of the centurion that makes him stand out so much. This Roman centurion, he trusted in the power and the authority of Jesus' words. He knew that all Jesus needed to do was say the word and his servant would be healed. He understood that Jesus was a man with great authority and that there was power in his word. That we would taste and see the riches of God's word a church family, that we would know and trust in the complete authority of God's word. You see, God has left us his holy word, okay? And we have no excuses for not knowing and not living according to the authority of God's word. We need to believe Jesus and take him at his word. God's word must be our final and ultimate authority in our lives. We need to have a biblical worldview, a biblical belief system that lines up in accordance with God's holy word. If we don't follow God at his word and instead we just do things on our own and we make up our own ways, our own rules, listen, the promises of God are not based upon our ways and our rules. They are based upon God's ways. And so make sure that you are building your life upon the trusty uh, foundation of God's word. Make sure that you are building upon the authority of God's word. It doesn't matter what society says. It doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what is socially acceptable now. What does God's word say? This is the authority that we build our life upon. We don't let the culture dictate to us what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. We allow God's word to be the final authority, the final say, and we build our lives upon it, okay? Too many people in the church are not living according to a biblical worldview. And we've compromised. And we've said, this is okay. It's like a guide. I'm just going to use this as a guide. 
you know, when I need some help, I'll reference it every now and then. This is God's word. Okay? We need to give it its due, its authority, and trust it and build our lives upon it. Well, let's look at verse 9, Jesus' response to this centurion as we continue with our observations. Verse 9 says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus marveled at the faith of this Roman centurion. The word marveled, it means to be amazed or to be astonished, okay? To be struck with admiration. Jesus was struck with admiration at the faith that this centurion displayed. It's interesting because Jesus is only said to have marveled twice in all of the scriptures. Two times it tells us that Jesus marveled. Once here in our text at the faith and the belief of a Gentile Roman military officer. And the other time that Jesus marveled was at the unbelief of the people from his own hometown of Nazareth. In Mark chapter 6, verse 6, we read, And he, referring to Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief. These people who had so much going for them, they had had the scriptures, they had the culture, they were brought up to know the Lord, to live for the Lord. He marveled at their unbelief, but he marveled at the belief of this Roman Gentile who had none of those things going for him, but yet could understand the authority of Jesus and submit himself to it. Both times Jesus is said to have marveled involved faith and belief. He marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion. He marveled at the lack of faith of the people of Nazareth. And I think it begs the question, what about us? What would Jesus' response be to our faith? Would we cause him to marvel, to be astonished or amazed? And would it be for good? Would it be for a good reason like that of the centurion or would it be because of our lack of faith that we would cause him to marvel? You see, this centurion, he had faith in Jesus to do what was humanly impossible and he knew that all it would take was for Jesus to speak the word and it would be so. He is an incredible example of faith in the Lord, one we should look to follow after in our own lives, that we would live that kind of faith as well, that we would trust God for the impossible and believe him to do as his word declares. Let's wrap this up by noting one last thing in verse 10. Verse 10, it says, And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well whom, who had been sick. Jesus healed the centurion servant. He was made well. Your translation may read, He was in good health or completely healed. In Matthew's account, we're told that the message to the centurion was, As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour instantly is the idea jesus responded to this man's great faith and he gave him the desire of his heart his desire was to see his servant healed and god granted him that desire psalm 37 verse 4 reads this delight yourself also in the lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart As the centurion delighted himself in the Lord and placed his complete faith and trust in the authority and the power of God to heal, that is exactly what happened. He was given the desires of his heart. God showed up and healed his servant, delivering him from his paralyzing illness and returning him to complete, full health once again. 
And I believe the same will happen to us as well. I trust the promise of God's word in Psalm 37, verse 4, that if we would delight ourselves in the Lord, that he would give us the desires of our heart. But listen, okay? I want to be very careful when I say this, okay? This isn't some blab it and grab it, okay? This isn't some name it and claim it type of thing here, okay? Listen, when our delight is in the Lord, we will find great joy and pleasure in God. We will find that the desires of our hearts will be ours, not because we want selfish things. No, okay, that isn't what this verse is saying. It's not saying, no, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you whatever you want, okay, in our selfish ambitions, okay? No, that's not what this is saying. Our delight is in the Lord. Our heart's desire is for the Lord. And God promises us that if we draw near to him, that he will draw near to us. God wants to bless us. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to meet with us and commune with us. So when we delight ourselves in the Lord, we are making him our delight and he will always satisfy. He will always be ready and willing to meet with us and to spend time with us. 